All right, so we are here today with Asanka Pathiraja, and today we're talking about a world event in Sri Lanka. So before we get started going into detail, um, Asanka, overview, what is happening in Sri Lanka right now? Well, first I want to begin this uh, analysis with a heartfelt, um, with heartfelt sympathy for what the Sri Lankan people are having to endure at the moment. Um, a lack of food, lack of... Um, fuel, lack of power, all of the essentials to life. Um, it's, it's really a tragedy, and um, my heart really goes out to them. So as it stands, uh, in the first quarter of 2022, Sri Lanka is in the uh, worst financial crisis it has gone through since independence in 1948. Uh, foreign currency reserves are um, severely mismatched against the external debt obligations the country has, very concerning uh, statistic uh, related to the balance of payments crisis is that the nation's foreign currency reserves have uh, plummeted by about 70% uh, since January 2020 to around $2.3 billion, even as it faced debt payments of about $4 billion over the next year. So it's a very disconcerting situation. And as a result, um, the country has not been able to um, bring in the necessary uh, essentials, uh, fuel, um, and food, essential items to help run the economy and to feed its people. Uh, there's a great deal of civil unrest, as one would expect, um, fomenting in the urban areas as uh, well as deeper into the inland. And um, the situation remains highly volatile and um, tragically, uh, Sri Lanka is in a position of no good options that won't result in more suffering for its people. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is really an economic crisis. So, you know, how did this develop? You know, Sri Lanka's current situation is the result of a, a range of factors, uh, very complex in nature. Um, you know, going back, Sri Lanka had been a... Uh, colony of the British Empire uh, up until 1948. And um, when it gained its independence, uh, its main kind of exports, uh, the world over people know about Sri Lankan tea. It's a, it's a very famous uh, commodity. Um, and over time, the Sri Lankan uh, government began to realize its value as a tourist destination. Um, so no analysis of where we are right now would be complete without a discussion of the civil war that occurred in Sri Lanka for over 30 years between the um, LTTE, um, led by Vallabhai Prabhakaran, and the Sri Lankan government, which ripped through society. Um, it was a, at, at its core an ethnic conflict um, that uh, where the LTTE was seeking to establish a separate homeland for the Tamil people in Sri Lanka and um, was met by resistance by the Sri Lankan government. And uh, the bloody culmination of that war occurred in 2008-9. Uh, and um, the intended consequences of such a long, prolonged, protracted conflict is uh, somewhat of a stunted economic environment to grow. And so necessary foreign capital investment into Sri Lanka's industries, though they were there, were not as high as they would have been in, into a kind of peacetime stable situation. So 2009 um, really was a 
nexus, a point that the Sri Lankan people believe that, okay, now with the war over, we would be in a position to grow economically and realize Sri Lanka's true potential. I mean, Sri Lanka has a great deal of potential. There's no um, underestimating that. It sits at a, ver- a vital crossroads of international trade in the Indian Ocean, uh, which, you know, ironically, uh, Dubai was able to capitalize on over the last several decades. Um, it has a highly educated workforce, uh, a, a, a vibrant uh, tea sector, and one of the top garment sectors in the uh, in the world. Um, and then, of course, tourism. Uh, you know, I believe in the right before the civil war began, there were equal arrivals in Thailand and Sri Lanka. Um, Sri Lanka is well known for its its lush uh, jungles, beaches, wildlife, culture, food. It's a very exotic country and full of you know, very lovely, friendly people. And so when 2009 came, tourism began to see a significant up, uh, uptick and uh, began to play a much greater role in, in Sri Lanka's GDP, which, of course, brings in more foreign exchange into the country. And uh, the intended growth that that created, the multiplier effect throughout the country in terms of infrastructure development and um, as well as kind of hotel construction and uh, road development and the building of a brand new airport, for example. And so on one track, we had a growing tourism side. Then kind of in, into that mix came the desire for the uh, Chinese government to take a greater role in Sri Lanka. And we can touch on this point a little bit later. But um, in essence, the Chinese, uh, part of their um, road road and belt initiative um, is to develop infrastructure in Africa and Asia that essentially gears their economies towards the ma- to mainland China. And so Hambantada port was, was constructed, which is one of the largest ports in Asia now um, on the southern tip of Sri Lanka to access the large trade route between Dubai and Singapore. Um, there was a brand new airport built and touching on what I said earlier, roads and, and railroads and power and power stations. So put these two factors together, Sri Lanka is very optimistic about its future. Then um, a series of unfortunate events, tragic events occurred. Uh, in 2019, April of 2019, there was a coordinated um, ISIS attack in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday uh, at multiple locations at the marquee hotels in Colombo as well as uh, religious uh, sites across the island that um, killed hundreds and as a result uh, caused a sharp drop off in tourism. So as I said, it, as tourism had been playing an increased role with, with um, uh, GDP, that was a severe blow. Um, so 2019 kind of continued on and on and on in with the decrease of, of said tourism but it really was 2020 and, you know, the, the, the effect of the pandemic that really killed the Sri Lankan tourism industry. And unfortunately, um, coupled with that were broad tax cuts that were enacted by the current government of Sri Lanka uh, in an effort to stimulate growth, which was just mis- mistimed with economic realities owing to the pandemic. So you had a, a, a decrease in government revenue right at the wrong time. So adding into this um, reduction in government revenue, 
is now a reduction in tourism revenue. Foreign exchange is not entering the country. And going back to my earlier discussion about the Civil War, one way the government had chosen to uh, finance a lot of its operations in the in the past were through the issuances of ISBs, international sovereign bonds, and our payments began to balloon, and we simply did not have the revenue to match that. And so, at that stage, the um, the, the government began to try, you know, different uh, policies in an effort to reduce the amount of outflows of um, foreign exchange, one of which was the 100% organic policy, which was uh, banning the use of fertilizers in uh, the agricultural sector. And uh, with the hope, of course, that you could maintain high productivity without having to spend that very vital foreign exchange to get the fertilizer in. Unfortunately, the, the, that policy completely backfired. And simply put, the uh, per acreage productivity dropped considerably. And for the first time, Sri Lanka wasn't able to feed itself, meaning that not only did they um, reduce the uh, productivity of the land, it coupled into a situation where Sri Lanka now had to import and thus expend more money to bring in food to uh, meet the gap, so to speak. And then, as I, dis- I, I had discussed with the, uh, the, the tax cuts that had come, both on the value-add tax as well as kind of the income tax, the international community um, looked at that situation, grew concerned, and began to downgrade Sri Lanka's debt. And so as that occurred, Sri Lanka lost access to foreign capital markets to continue to raise money through the ISBs, uh, those international sovereign bonds I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So that is a very volatile mix. You can no longer access credit uh, in global financial markets. The uh, agricultural sector is failing, and you have to now import rice and essentials that previously you could grow internally without losing that foreign exchange. The pandemic reduced the inflow of tourists into the country. So touching upon the earlier comment I had on the organic uh, farming policy and the removal of the use of fertilizers, aside from its effect on the um, on crops such as rice, was its effect on tea. Now, tea is a major export of Sri Lanka. Uh, it alternates uh, as one of the top tea exporters in the world and is a major source of uh, foreign exchange into the country. And as a result of the, the banning of pesticides and fertilizers and this shift to organic farming, the Sri Lankan tea sector suffered tremendously. And so another source of foreign exchange was not was removed. Um, and then lastly was the Ukraine-Russia crisis. Uh, two things. Number one, Ukraine and Russia played a predominant outsized role in the number of tourists coming to Sri Lanka. They no longer come. And then number two is the effect that the crisis has had on oil prices. So Sri Lanka could barely afford oil where it was, add in this inflationary pressure as well as this energy shock, and it's catastrophic. And this is why you see these long lines in Sri Lanka uh, and the military has had to be deployed to fuel stations across the, across the island simply to prevent uh, violence because we simply do not have the oil we need and add that into not only cars that are on the road, but also factories 
and storefronts that can no longer operate for 10 hours a day because of power cuts, because we don't have the oil, and you see a diminished economy. And the intended result of all of this is, is a severe deficit. Yeah, when, when you take a look at a lot of economic kind of issues and situations in different countries around the world, a lot of them seem like they're caused by, you know, one major factor. One kind of distinction here is that it seems like it's almost every factor seems to be going wrong at once for them. Yeah, it really is, is a perfect storm. And, you know, a lot of people want to mistakenly point to, there's been a lot of political friction uh, owing to China's involvement in Sri Lanka, and people want to point to the loans and the debt exposures the Sri Lankan government has to the Chinese. Um, but the reality is that Sri Lanka's creditors are fairly vast. We, um, we have borrowed from India. We have borrowed from the Asian Development Bank. We borrowed from the IMF. Yep. It's not a singular source. It's a very complex uh, scenario that Sri Lanka finds itself from the creditor perspective. Yeah, and you've mentioned China a couple times, so let's get into that. Um, any kind of basic you know, article research going into this Sri Lanka conversation, you really see two major other countries that appear, and that's China and India. Um, can you kind of talk about the role that those two countries are playing right now and what's going on in Sri Lanka? Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a profound geopolitical rivalry between India and China for control and influence in Sri Lanka. Um, the Chinese, as I had mentioned through their uh, road, road and Belt Initiative, have invested heavily into Sri Lanka. But the way that they structure these their investment, quote unquote, are through loans that are uh, given for infrastructure projects, which are then handed back to Chinese contractors who then come in and, and develop the power grid, the roads, the ports. And now I believe it's Asia's largest uh, urban development, which is uh, called the Colombo Port City which is a artificial island that was uh, built off the coast of Colombo, the, the main, the capital and commercial hub, um, where the goal, the vision, the broader vision is to create a, the Singapore of, of South Asia to match kind of that trade route that I discussed earlier in, in, in this analysis. So as one would imagine, uh, India is not a fan of this uh, influence that China is exerting. And there has been a tit-for-tat over time as the Modi government has become more aggressive in maintaining and enhancing the relationship between India and Sri Lanka. And so they too have kind of have stepped in to um, finance projects and to provide lines of credit. Um, this balance of payment crisis that we are facing right now is extraordinarily acute, but we have been running very close to it for several years, at which point the Sri Lankan government has utilized either China or India, and in, I believe in one instance, Bangladesh, to provide lines of credit to um, allow it to survive until the next, survive for another day, so to speak. Right. But, um, and really, I, you know, an anecdote here, I, and I, I apologize to digress, but Bangladesh has really become a, a powerful story of economic development in South Asia, and essentially their decision to extend that uh, credit to Sri Lanka was more of a signaling to the world that, hey, we have arrived. You know, 
So from there, they don't have a geopolitical interest in taking any influence in Sri Lanka. For them, it was more of a signaling to global markets that they are now at a sufficient level where they can begin to lend in an aggressive way. So that I digress, but that's an important note when it comes to Bangladesh. Yeah. And you, you kind of mentioned this competition between India and China over, you know, a lot of the influence and, and the infrastructure of Sri Lanka. Is that... Is that beneficial in any way, or is it entirely uh, negative? Well, that was the hope, was that it would be beneficial. Right. Uh, you know, as I said, during as a result of 30-year civil war, Sri Lanka severely lacked in uh, internal development. Um, we didn't have the, the nice carpeted freeways that we take for granted in the West, uh, and we, we lacked kind of the necessary infrastructure to help the economy grow, to get goods and services around the country more rapidly and to also bolster our tourism sector. So yes, there was the hope that all of this was going to be very positive, but um, you know, nothing in this world is free. I mean, in a very blunt way uh, to put it, I know, but China is not handing loans and without extracting something in return. And the same can be said for India. And so, you know, to date, Sri Lanka has stayed as clear as it can of going to the IMF. The IMF is a, a pretty well-known organization, the International Monetary Fund. Is there a reason they would avoid using that as a resource? So the International Monetary Fund was created specifically to deal with balance of payments crises in the developing world. So the first reaction would be, well, that would make sense, right, to go to them. Now, the reality is that when IMF was created in the, in the wake of uh, World War II, it was the sole hegemon uh, to provide aid to these countries. Uh, of course, you were dealing with the Soviets and the, and the U.S. rivalry vis-a-vis the Cold War. And, but at its, as it stands today, they're not the only rodeo in town. And one consequence of going to the IMF is that they generally place far more rigid restrictions on the behavior of the government that's uh, involved in a restructuring or a lending program with them that curtails their autonomy. And my belief is that the current government um, did not want to cede that autonomy, wanted to maintain some controls with the central bank as pertains to uh, currency devaluation and and currency manipulation. I, I hesitate to use the word manipulation, but um, the ability to use currency as a tool to combat what's occurring in the country, which would be likely stripped away at the IMF. Like fiscal and monetary policy. Exactly. So, and the the Sri Lankan government was cognizant of China and India's kind of interest in the country. So they likely kept the IMF as the lender of last resort inside, internally, and externally tried their level best to kind of play India and China off of one another before really exhausting those options. And now we find ourselves where we are and now we have gone to the IMF and now we're in the process, I believe, of uh, discussions there to see what form of restructuring we can do to to alleviate this uh, situation. All right. And one last kind of economic question on this. You talk about Bangladesh and how they've grown to be a uh, significant regional power. Is there any reason why Sri Lanka and Bangladesh have gone such different directions other than that that long 30-year civil war? Yes, I think that there was a far more effective transition that the Bangladeshis made away from their 
roots in in uh, low cost manufacturing to and to where they are today. Uh, on the Sri Lankan side, I think that the the factors at play that c- constitute the Sri Lankan economy are very vulnerable, and um, there was a belief internally across all political spectrums at the end of the war that now that that's gone, we can ascend very rapidly. And one thing I mentioned earlier about the ISBs is that by accessing foreign capital, we were able to fund a lot of asset growth in the country. But I, I call those white elephants, essentially, because they weren't adding real economic value to the country. We would build a giant skyscraper shaped like a lotus in the middle of Colombo, but didn't invest necessarily in in core attributes of a healthy macro environment, um, improve power supply, uh, better fuel storage, uh, better logistics hubs. Those are the type of things that it would have been beneficial to invest in, but we did choose a lot of these white elephant assets. So we were borrowing at a very high rate. We Our interest rates were very high to uh, justify to foreign investors. The maturity on those loans were very short, and we spent a lot of that money very quickly. So that is a lot of mismanagement at the government level. And yes, we have suffered through some calamitous um, global factors, the pandemic, the, the bombings that occurred in Sri Lanka in 2019. But also you have to add in mismanagement at the government level across all political spectrums. This is not limited to one side. It sounds like this may have come due, you know, with or without those external factors. But let's let's turn um, let's turn to you know the crisis solution. You know, the, this is a, a far-reaching issue. It seems to go back, you know, almost over fifty years if you count the civil war and then the recovery efforts. Um, how do you see this being resolved? Well, you know, Sri Lanka has an upcoming payment. Uh, due in the hundreds of millions uh, to its creditors, and it's face facing a you know a true catch twenty two because if it were to pay and avoid default, fine from a financial perspective. But if but it needs that money to get those essentials in in uh, the food, the uh, rice, lentils, etc. So, what are the consequences? Okay, let's say that it doesn't pay. So you can look to other scenarios globally that have occurred over the last several decades, Argentina, for example, and Lebanon more recently, you know, the pain in the short term is very high for a default. It doesn't completely remove Sri Lanka from one day in the future accessing foreign capital again, provided we go through the right restructuring, but at least people will not be suffering and dying in the streets. And also from a political perspective, when someone is hungry, riots can quickly foment into revolutions. So the um, consensus now, as kind of Sri Lanka is um, moving through these very acute days of of crisis, is shifting away from, okay, shall we do everything in our power to maintain our sterling track record on the payment of our foreign debt? Or do we feed our population? And there there are voices growing now to say, we'll go through the default. Um, the reality is the negotiations with the IMF are, are going to continue for some time. These are complex things to work through. I know the uh, delegation is traveling from Sri Lanka to 
to Washington in, in April, but it won't be an overnight fix. And um, there'll be a lot of back and forth. So in terms of the uh, solution to this, I think that from a economic perspective, a restructuring is absolutely necessary. Um, from a human perspective, we will have to figure out a way to um, continue to leverage our position vis-a-vis India and Sri Lanka to get short-term immediate relief for our for the Sri Lankan people while simultaneously in the backdrop getting the necessary restructuring in place that will assuage the concern of foreign creditors as well as allow us to access a, a credit facility from the IMF. All right. And and I guess kind of wrapping this this up you know, we've talked about the effects that this has on Sri Lanka and, and kind of a little bit to its region, but what kind of impact do you see this crisis having, you know, in their full region and then also globally? You know, right now we are in an inflationary environment globally, and we've suffered through two years of a, a terrible pandemic that has had intended consequences on, uh, on economic uh, well-being. Of con- on the economic well-being of countries and a general policy of central banks to print money. Now, <clears throat> the current situation in Russia and the Ukraine has caused um, a great deal of pressure on international oil markets um, with the upward trajectory that emerging markets simply can't cope with. So if you want to extrapolate out, look at Sri Lanka's situation has also been exacerbated by the rise in fuel and rise in, they simply don't have the money to pay for it. Now add in the Russia and the Ukraine situation, it's, it's completely untenable, right? Now take that and go around the world and chances are as the tide is now rolling out where likely a lot of emerging countries have relied excessively on debt to finance their day-to-day, inflation and these energy shocks could really begin to show the cracks in those markets. Now, Sri Lanka is in a very unique position because of the external factors that I mentioned um, that are unique to the island, tourism, agriculture, etc. But those two main systemic factors can have a very pronounced effects on vulnerable economies in the emerging world. Now, we had a severe you know, emerging markets Asia contagion crisis in the late 90s. And um, I'm not saying that's necessarily going to occur again, but it's something to look out for um, in, in the time to come. Uh, so that's more from like the emerging markets perspective. You know, Sri Lanka is a small country in terms of its relative GDP. Will it, will a collapse of the economy there spill over India? Unlikely. Could it cause a potential disruption of the social fabric, yes. I mean, chances are uh, there will be a refugee uptick of Sri Lankans trying to leave and go to foreign countries. And more highly educated will go to locations like Australia, England, United States. The economically challenged will look to travel to uh, places like India and to the Middle East um, simply because of a lack of resources. And as a result, that will have an effect on on um, the neighboring on neighboring countries. So we're looking at a large social impact. Yes, 
Well, thank you, Asanka, for shedding some light on on this situation in Sri Lanka. Um, mm-hmm. If if any of the listeners want to learn about the the Russia and Ukraine situation that you referenced, they can listen to a previous episode. And um, yeah, just thank you for thank you for uh, taking the time. My pleasure.